Hello, and welcome to episode 303 of Constructing Comics, a podcast building stories one page and one panel at a time. On this episode, we have an interview with Dennis Robinson, creator of Lycan, now on Kickstarter. This is Matt, and I'm joined by Constructing Comics co-host Noah. Hey there. Dennis, thanks so much for, for joining us. Um, you know, we were able to, to meet up at uh, Maryland Pop and Horror Con. You know, we had tables next to each other. Uh, we talked uh, for those, you know, that, that weekend. You, you had your book. You had mentioned to everybody coming by the table that you had a, you had a Kickstarter coming out, which was out. Um, so, you know, we were able to talk to you and, and say, hey, we wanted to have you on the podcast, but let's, um, let's do as we normally do when we start off. Let's, uh, let's, let's get the, uh, the quick bio and the elevator pitch for this awesome book on Kickstarter. Well, first, let me say thanks for having me on the show. And you guys were probably the highlight of the <laughs> Maryland Pop and Horror Con for a myriad of reasons. Oh, very true. Um, you know, I got some great art and comics from you guys, but also, I got to see Matthew very drunkenly try and arm wrestle Darth Vader. So, I mean, yeah, worked out. Yeah. But I mean, mo- po- possibly most importantly is my new discovery of how much I really like kebab because I've never had it before. <laughs> oh, so all, all kinds of positives coming from from that show where it wasn't the greatest financially, <laughs> but it was still a lot of fun regardless. Agreed. So, <laughs> So my name is Dennis Robinson, and I'm a consultant by day. I do podcasting by night and also a little bit of comic books, uh, comic book writing, I should say. So my podcast is Botched, a D&D podcast. It's an improv comedy show draped in the loose skin of Dungeons and Dragons with a little bit of drinking involved. My book series, Lycan Solomon's Odyssey, is about the world's first werewolf. The second chapter is live on Kickstarter right now, and it delves into ancient Arabic folklore, mythology, and like really horrifying monsters while also touching on themes of PTSD and grief. And it also opens up the world to magic. Awesome. awesome. So I'm going to let, uh, let Noah ask the, the first question here. Yeah, I actually took the time to read it right before the interview. The first chapter, loved it, man. Thank you. Um, it's uh, It's got such a great presentation. It's like a really nice oversized first issue um is that is that nice to be able to like not have to worry about page counts because you're on kickstarter and you can just do it as long as you want it to be so that's sort of a blessing and a curse so it wasn't supposed to be 60 pages originally original well i mean okay this is a this is a weird story here. So originally, yes, it was supposed to be 60 pages, but my first editor, when he came on the project, said 60 pages is too long. We need to cut it down to 24. We talked about my first editor at the Maryland Pop and Heart. Yeah. <laughs> and he had said, you know, instead of instead of cutting it into two books, let's just take your 60 page book and make it a 24 page book. And I said, There's no universe in which you could possibly take this story and make it into 24 pages. Yeah, no. And you would lose all of the character interaction and the the weight of deaths and all that stuff. And so he he had given me a, lay, a layout of what he envisioned for the book. And literally characters would appear on one page and die on the next. And I said, nobody's going to care <laughs> about any of yeah. these characters. So I got him to agree to instead splitting the book into two books. So it turned into a 24-page book to basically better match things like Marvel, DC, stuff like that. But I had a particular story I wanted to tell and the artists, as they were going through the script, they're just like, there's too many panels and there's too many words. So you need to like move stuff around. 
So 24 pages became 26 pages. And then 26 pages became 28 pages. And then 28 pages became 30 pages where everything seemed pretty balanced. And you still got the nice little surprises on the opening pages. And, you know, everything still flowed just fine. So it was going to be two 30-page books. However, COVID happened. So when I was going to launch the Kickstarter, it was going to be right around 2020. So things got pushed out to the following year, to 2021. But by the time the Kickstarter was going to launch, both of the first, like the, the two halves of the book were done. So I said, well, I may as well just put them back together at this point. And so it was a 60 page book. Now, the part where I say it's a blessing and a curse, it's a blessing that I get to tell the story however I want to tell it. However, the curse part is from my experience talking to comic shops, they don't really like uh, long indie books because, you know, I'm an unknown uh, property and people are not as apt to sort of spend their money on something they know nothing about uh, for $15. Even though I've been told $15 is more than fair for the yeah. 72 pages, but they'd rather buy three Spider-Man or three Iron Man or three Batman or something like that. So it, it's sort of turned into a situation where, okay, I will sell it through whatever comic book shops want, like, you know, want to work with me, mostly my local shops. But for the most part, I'm going to do Kickstarter. I'm going to do conventions. So that's sort of where it has has fallen at the moment anyways. That's Very awesome. Cool. So if I remember correctly, when we were talking, you know, tables next to each other, the, is the plan for this to be a 12-issue series? 15. 15, okay. And uh, now that you've sort of established uh, the, this first issue, um, are you looking for a page count in that same 60 to 72 um, page count or are you just going to let the story sort of dictate you know the the number of pages that you need so i'm going to let the story dictate the number of pages i need but as it turned out the second book happened to be the exact same length as the first book so it's also 72 pages 60 pages of story 12 pages of extras so the first two books are identical in terms of length the third book uh the dra the, the script is written and it's 90 pages of story with i forget how many pages of extras, probably like, I don't remember if it's 12 or not, but yeah. So it's, it's about 50% longer for the third book. So I haven't decided if I'm going to cut that one in half or just say, ah, screw it. And just have big, long books and, you know, be totally fine with that. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you have a point like uh, in the midway point of the, the 15, maybe the six, seven, eight issue mark where you think it like, would make a like a volume one and a volume two. I'm just thinking of ways that it sort of can be collected um, as you progress through the story. So my plan is actually three arcs. So three five. So uh, fifteen is three five chapter arcs basically. So that's that's my plan anyway. So Solomon's Odyssey is the name of the first arc, and then I don't know the name of the second arc or the third arc yet. I just know the plot of all the books. I just haven't, the titles are the the toughest thing for me. It took me forever <laughs> to come yeah. up with the title that I currently have. So now I got to come up with a new subtitle, but that's like three or four books away. So I'm not worried about it just yet. That was actually, I was going to ask if Solomon's Odyssey was the whole 15 issues or just the first arc. So that's, that's cool to know. So will it traverse multiple time periods throughout the series? Cause this one takes place in what 4,000 BC. Um, so, so yeah, sorry, so that the first, BC. yeah, the, the yeah. first book's 8,000 BC. The, the second book starts right when the first book ends, 
but then over the course of the book is a few hundred years. The okay. third the third book goes more into like Sumeria, um, so like Gilgamesh and things like that. And we also introduce some H.P. Lovecraft themes. Um, the fourth book goes into like ancient Egypt. The fifth book goes into ancient Greece. So it's sort of like a Greek Avengers where you have Heracles and Daedalus and Orpheus and all these other oh. different uh, heroes from Greek mythology. If you can't tell, I love <laughs> Greek mm. mythology. So I was like, oh, what can I do with this? <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so that's the last book in the chapter. And then I don't even remember if, so Shannon is the person who comes to uh, cons with me. She always tells everybody her favorite book is book four, the one where they go to Egypt. So, okay. um, but I, I love mythology and stuff like that. So I wanted to explore different regions. And even though, you know, Egypt and Greece have been done quite a bit, those were just areas I wanted to explore and do stuff with. The second and third arc is where you get into, you know, a lot of different stuff, Chinese, uh, Buddhist, um, uh, King Arthur, I'm thinking uh, the bubonic plague, Genghis Khan, stuff like that. So I have all these plans for the second arc. And then the third arc is more like modern history. That's so That's cool. cool. Yeah. Do you have um, like a, a background in history and mythology? Is that what led you to combine all these things into a really cool, tight horror comic? No, actually. So uh, my background is technically in uh, psychology with a little dabbling of animation before I uh, left art school and went to a terrible degree of psychology because it's useless <laughs> <laughs> unless you get a doctorate. Um, but so, no, uh, my background or my my love of mythology came from playing the God of War games, actually. Right. Um, that's where I sort of got really into Greek mythology to the point where if we would go to museums and they were doing stuff on Greek mythology, I could literally answer almost every question. And I think one of the tours, the person was like, do you play a lot of God? Of War? And I was like, <laughs> yes, I do. And they're like, yeah, we, we always know <laughs> the ones that are playing God of War. Um, but then also through doing the podcast. So, for instance, um, when we did our fourth season, it was like a 1932 New York H.P. Lovecraft sort of theme. And the reason I picked New York is that it's a melting pot of all kinds of different ethnicities and uh, religions and all kinds of backgrounds. So I pulled mythology from all over the place, like Slavic mythology, Japanese, Chinese, um, Louisiana, like all these different mythologies, pulling them in and just finding all these interesting stories and monsters with like super crazy, but like, I don't know if you know, have you guys ever heard of a Rougarou? Yeah. Okay. So that's like the Louisiana werewolf. And the weirdest thing to me is that apparently the way you, you don't get eaten is if you put a certain number of items on your porch, because it can't count past a certain <laughs> number, like just like weird, crazy stuff like that. I just, I just dig mythology and how like stories uh came to be in the first place that's so cool i like that you picked it up that it starts in the cradle of civilization though like you can believe that this is the first werewolf you know instead of whitewashing history you actually set it in something where it's like yeah that's probably where it, you know if if a werewolf came from anywhere it was here you know i really like that thank you i so i you know, I even put on the back of the book, like, you know, you've heard about this werewolf because people argue, you know, what's the first werewolf? So I said, all right, we'll just go way past that. So then we don't have to worry about any of like this overlap. But then also by putting it so far in the past, 
I can then explore these different regions and times and things like that to, you know, tell these stories that I really want to get into, like, you know, he happened to be there during the sacking of Troy and whatnot. So, like, there were all these little stories that I, I like the, the plan is to do almost like an alternate telling of history where the events are still the same as where, you know, we experienced it or have it written. But like just like a slight twist on it, like with supernatural and folklore and monsters and things like that, um, kind of like how they did, you know, with old history. You know, they always have dragons or monsters and heroes and all that stuff. So I wanted to do something similar with that, where you have this alternate telling of history, but you're just using um, all this supernatural stuff to, you know, basically tell it a different way. Nice. So you get the, 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 you know, the, the idea to, to make this comic, you're working on it. I'm assuming at some point you, you go out to, to find a creative team. Do you want to talk a little bit about the, some of the folks that you brought in to, to help make this book a reality? Sure. So I got r insanely lucky with the team I managed to put together. So it, it was not the easiest team to put together uh, to begin with. So five years ago, when we first started, my, my first editor and I, you know, sat down, tried to find an art team. He was very busy doing cons every weekend. And he was like, oh, you know, just look on DeviantArt. And then, you know, if you find somebody you like, send him my way and we'll go over it. But the problem was because he was doing cons so much when I would send him artists, you know, it would take some time to get back. And a lot of times they would have already taken jobs. So we, we missed out on some people. So then, you know, things kind of got put on pause for a bit. And then because of the pandemic, um, you know, cons shut down. So then we could really sit down and focus on things. And one of the artists that we uh, hired to do work for Botched, uh, her name is uh, Ashley. She's Cloverkin is, is how she's known as an artist. And, you know, her husband is Gabo. And so I reached out to her to reach out to him and say, you know, how, where do I go to find artists? Cause I didn't really like my experience using deviant art. You get a whole bunch of stuff. Like you get a lot of submissions, but not very much of it was what I was looking for. Cause I had a very specific style in my head for how I want the book to look and nothing that I was getting in was giving me much confidence in that. So I reached out to Gabo and he said, here, let me put you in touch with this Facebook group called Pair. I think it's something along the lines of pairing writers with artists. And you have to get vetted when you go in. And then whenever you make an ad, it has to be like a legit ad. You can't be trying to pay somebody an exposure because uh, mm -hmm. I know you. I mean, no, I'm sure you love to be paid an exposure. It's it's great. Oh, um, yeah. It's all I great for. Been. Yeah, it's great for paying the bills and all that jazz. So yeah, it has to be a legit ad. So I, I put an ad out there and I started getting responses in and the quality of the responses was way higher than DeviantArt. Um, some of the responses were some people that I had seen from DeviantArt, but it was much easier to sort of whittle down a list of who to work with. And I said, you know, I was looking for a cross between two styles. There was a, a book that I had seen called Hillbilly that I really I dug the supernatural elements and the style of it. But I also liked this other book called, uh, I think it's called Love the Lion or For the Love of the Lion, something like that. And it has a very hand-drawn watercolor feel to it. It's a beautiful book. And I, I said, I want to smash these two styles together where it's stylized, it's not inked, so you don't have like a lot of thick lines, but you get that sort of hand-drawn watercolor feel to it. And one of the artists that I found, uh, Sal Denaire, 
immediately was like, I love both of those books. I'm going to, I'm going to do this right now. And he nailed it out of the park with his sketch. I didn't even really need to see too many other artists after that. After When he gave me his uh, test sketch of Solomon and the werewolf, I was like, yes, this is exactly what I'm looking for. For the colorist, it was a little more difficult because there were about four or five art, uh, colorists that were super, super talented. And in the end, it came down to like two, two colorists, but the one never bothered to respond <laughs> to my message. So I was like, easy pick. We're going with the other one. Mm-hmm. Um and Ezekiel Dominguez uh, was the person that I was vying for. And then my editor was um, more leaning towards the other colorist. So it just so happened that, you know, the person that I wanted was the one who was available and responded because communication is key. Oh, wait, don't, you know, don't uh, don't knock the whole communication thing. It goes a long way. Yeah. But uh, Ezekiel Dominguez, he's out of Argentina. Sal is out of Spain. And then our letter actually came from my first uh, editor, Henri, on his books. So his name is Joel Saavedra. He's also out of Argentina. So that that's the art team that I managed to put together. And then the, the team did change, not art-wise, over time as uh, Henri and I parted ways. So I needed new editors. So um, instead of having one person do editing of art and uh, the text, I went with two separate editors. So my my text editor is um, a woman named Stephanie Crugnola. She's a friend of mine. She's English teacher, does lots of plays and Shakespeare. So I figured she'd be really good to bring on, even though she doesn't necessarily have comic book experience, screenplays for like Shakespearean stuff to me, it looks very similar to a comic book script in, in the terms of like how you have to write it. You know, where's the light coming from, the camera angles, like who's where in the scene and all that jazz. And she's very good with dialogue. So she's been fantastic to have on board and she really understands um, how I want my characters to sort of. Uh, live and breathe in the world and you know she'll immediately call me out like i don't think this character would do this in this scene you know can you change it up or i think these characters would talk a little differently can you change like the uh, the verbiage of how they speak and so she's been really really good with that the art editor is somebody i mentioned before gabo um you know i was asking you know where can i go to find an art editor and he's like i mean i'll i'll do it so it's like sweet so I brought him on. So that is my whole team now. And I'm super, super lucky to have them. They're all fantastic and amazing people. And then the covers, uh, the first book, I had two covers done by Christian Dabari. Awesome, awesome stuff. Uh, and then for the second book, one of the covers is from Christian Dabari. And then the other two are from a, another amazing artist named Matthew Sutton, who I met through uh, Botched at um, Dragon Con, basically. And so he's done art for... Uh, botched, you know, numerous times and I've always wanted him to do covers and he just happened to be available this time of year. So uh, I got two covers from him and I, I, I think they're fantastic as well. I agreed. So um, you, you had mentioned that the, uh, you know, you, you had a, a discussion with the artist, you know, you guys melded on the, you know, the love of the, the mutual books and what you wanted to put together for the art style. And he sent you a, a pinup of, uh, of a character did you see did you see any sequentials that he had did or you know had done or had seen previous works or you were like, hey, you know, if I have to have a talking head scene that you know this guy can can still get the story done? So when we first started, you know, I wasn't exactly sure what I was looking for. 
Um, but Henri was, you know, teaching me over time, like, hey, if we're looking for an artist, we definitely need to look at sequentials. It can't just be, you know, they made pretty pictures or, you know, they do really good still images. They have to be able to tell sequential art. So when I did the ad on Facebook in that uh, Facebook group, I said, hey, give me samples of your work that include sequential art. And I thought his sequential art was really, really good too. Uh, I thought he had a really good sense of motion. He did really creative things with panels where they weren't just static. Um, he would have things sort of like popping out of the panel or like not even be in a panel, but just taking up like a section of space on the page. Um, so I, I thought all around, he did a, a great job. It wasn't just that uh, that, that pinup sketch. It was the pinup sketch was more just to see if he could get the style that I was looking for. Um, we looked through the sequentials first to sort of weed out anybody that we didn't like. Like they had to be very we had we had to really like them in order to give them the tryout in the first place. So we weren't giving the tryout to you know everybody. It was just the artists that we thought could do a good job. We just wanted to see could they do the style. So for instance, Ezekiel Dominguez, he came through. Stone Tower Studio, and they also offered an artist, but the style that they they gave us was too modern day Saudi Arabia. I was like, yeah, they probably wouldn't wear that uh, back then, and you know, so it, that part didn't work out. But I loved the colors, so it's like, hey, you know, is it a package deal? Do I have to take everybody, or can I just get Ezekiel? And they're like, oh, you can just have Ezekiel. And I was like, awesome, <laughs> give me Ezekiel, please. Um, so that's sort of how that worked out. Cool. So I, I have a question about uh, the, the the first issue. Sure. There's a good there's a good blend of character development and making us care about the characters. This sort of sense of dread, you mm -hmm. know. Uh, it's a horror book. It's involving vampires. You know, there's a certain number of things that we can expect. But you do a great job of, you know, making us care about the characters, and then you know you you, you splice that in with action. Was it very important for you at the at the start of the book to, to have that character development, make us care about the, you know, make us care about the characters? Because, you know, a cool concept can only take you so far if you don't, you know, have your reader care or, you know, be interested in, and want to see what happens to the character. So was that important to you? 100%. Um, if you actually go back and look at the very first version of the book that I wrote, which wasn't a comic book script because I had no idea what the, what I was doing. Uh, so I wrote this sort of weird mutant amalgamation of a book and a comic book script where everything's just way too descriptive, but there's still like uh, dialogue boxes and all this stuff. If you go back and look at that one, the characters, I mean, characters that are in the book now weren't really even in the book then. They were just listed as like friend one and friend two or villager one and villager two. And when I, I gave it to people to read to sort of get feedback, because I was like, OK, what do you like? What do you not like? What's working? What's not working? Give me feedback and then I can sort of build it, shape it, change it. And so a lot of what they said, you know, we really want more about these other characters. Like, who are these characters that are going with him on this journey? You know, give us more about his wife. Give us more about his kid. Give us more about his brother. So I started twisting, not even twisting, but just altering and reshaping the story to be more about the characters around the main character and how they sort of shape how he moves through his world and why he does the things that he does. And 
trying to really give them a believable um, sort of personality. When I wrote the, the, a lot of the characters, like the brother and the two friends, I was pulling from how I interact with my brothers and my friends and like the way that we talk to each other and, you know, how they uh, react to certain situations and do things in certain situations because I was trying to make them believable and have people care about them uh, for later in the story. So, so yeah, so it, it definitely wasn't there at the start when I had no idea what I was doing, but through learning how to write comics, um, that's where I sort of figured out, okay, this is how you should put, you sh this is how you should build this so that people care about it. And yeah. This is how you should be doing dialogue. This is how you should be doing captions to really keep people engaged and interested and make the world believable. So, so taking it from that, uh, you know, that, that, that first version, that's a, a combination of a, a prose book uh, with, with some comic book scripting in there, you decided you want to go make this a comic and you said you, you had to learn how to make a comic. Um, you know, there's, there seems to be two ways of going about that or maybe a third way, which is a blend of it, you know, you can reverse engineer a comic book or a comic book series that you, you really like, or you can sort of grab the, you know, the tried and true textbooks that we all know, the, the understanding comics and, and, and the like, or maybe a blend of the two. What was your approach when you decided, hey, I want to turn this thing that's in this one form to, to a, you know, a comic script that I can hand over to, to, a, to an artist who can understand and convey through his art, what I'm trying to convey through my words. So Henri actually gave me a couple. Of, so when I did the original scripts and or I guess we'll call them scripts when I didn't know what I was doing, Henri um, put me in touch with his first editor. And when I sent that to him, that guy responded with, there is nothing salvageable about this story, about <laughs> these characters or anything. You should immediately put this in the trash and then, but if you'd like, you can pay me $1,800 and I'll teach you how to write comics. Uh, I did not take him up on his offer. Good. But when, uh, so I, I was basically ready to, to give up because at the same time, I had a bunch of friends that were giving me constant crap about the books, like just like playful ribbing, but it was bad timing <laughs> in terms of like, this is not, the, I don't want to hear the playful ribbing right now. This guy literally just crapped all over this stuff. Maybe I'm not really cut out for this. So one of my friends, Shannon, I mean, you've met Shannon, yeah. uh, who's the biggest supporter of the book. She had dinner with Henri, and so she pitched the book to him, and he got so excited about it that he called me up and said, hey, I want to be your editor. And so I sent him the scripts, and he goes, okay, I see why the guy said what he said, but obviously he's wrong. You just need to learn how to actually do any of this because you have no idea what you're doing. So he recommended two books to me to read. Understanding Comics was the first one. So you hit that one on the head. And then the other one was, I'm trying to remember the name of it. It's uh, it's by Eisner. It's, um, what is it? Deal with God or something like Contract with God, I forget. Yeah. I yeah. So, the, yeah. Yeah. So he, it's this big, thick uh, book. It's like a, a whole bunch of uh, stories in there. So I read that and understanding comics. And then he gave me a script format. He's like, here, work off this. So I took what I had originally written and sort of reformatted it into the script and changed everything around. Now, the overall story is pretty much the same. It hasn't really changed. But how the characters interact with one another, how the scenes are laid out, that all has changed quite a bit. So and then as we were writing, he and I would, you know, talk about 
you know, what is the point of captions? What is the point of dialogue? The the reason you have a comic is, you know, so you can show the audience what's going on. So your captions, your dialogue should not tell the audience what they can see. It should be telling the audience what they can't see. So like their inner thoughts, feelings, um, you know, other things that might be going on in the world that you don't have time to go and show. Like those, that's the type of information that you should be giving to the audience always give the audience something that they can't see on the page. So I took that and sort of ran with it and, you know, had to keep working on dialogue because I had a tendency to just constantly throw in flowery stuff that didn't need to be there. And every once in a while it still sneaks in now and then luckily I have a really good editor. (laughs) So she's like, you're like, she's like, Nope, you're doing it again. And I'm like, ah, crap. Okay. Normal Uh language. Um, And not even like, super modern language because i always try and stay away i try and keep the i mean granted it's in english and obviously they wouldn't be speaking english back then but like i try not to use any words that wouldn't really match for the time period like you know get a watch or something like that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense in 8000 bc um so that was sort of the process that's how i had to learn things i i went through some books and learned that way and looked at comics and then Henri worked with me one-on-one as we, as I wrote the script and rewrote the script um, to sort of teach me how it should work. And then I sort of just rolled with it from there. Very cool. So I want to maybe take the, uh, the interview into the crowdfunding talk, but I don't want to leave story and art um, if Noah has anything else that he wants to, to talk about. No, I actually was going to ask about the character stuff, too, and I really appreciated that about the book because it made the twists in towards the end of the book all the more painful mm-hmm. to get to know characters and have them fight to get to know each other and fight for each other. It was, it was really brilliant. So kind Thank of you. taking it back to the first creative question, I really appreciate the time you took on this comic, and I'm happy that you're you have a platform where you're able to take the time to tell the story correctly. Um, not a lot of comics are able to do that under the confines of publishers and other things. So awesome. Yeah. Um, that is, so that was one of the things that I've, I was worried about was, um, you know, publishers and whatnot, because I know working with corporate <laughs> that uh, things can get sort of mangled and thrown in a wrench into pretty quickly um, just because, you know, that's just whatever the overlord says about anything at any particular time. Um, and I'm very, very particular about my stories. So I like I want to tell them a certain way. I want them to look a certain way. I want people to be able to see it the way that it's in my head. Uh, and luckily, I think, you know, each of the books has turned out exactly that way where they can see it, uh, you know, how it is in my head. Uh, as crazy as my head is half the time. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy, brilliant, crazy like a fox. Well, it's funny. So like, you know, I I was just talking about how like much I struggle with the writing and like figuring out how to write. And one of the nicest things uh, that has meant the most to me from from people that I've spoken to, um, you know, a couple podcasts here and there that have uh, reviewed the book is that they said it doesn't read like somebody's first comic. No. Um, One show literally said that they tried looking me up to figure out what else I had worked on so they could read it. (laughs) And there isn't anything. And they're like, how is this your first book? I said, I don't I mean, it's my first book. I don't know what you want me to do. <laughs> okay. So I do remember a question then about that because I was, um, yeah, it's really impressive that this is your first book, but it's so cinematic too and how it's laid out. Like everything is very like, all the panels are very wide mm-hmm. and um, 
it almost reads, I mean, it reads like a comic, obviously, but like there's almost like a storyboard aspect to it as well, mm-hmm. especially with like your panel count. And it's like the wide panels maybe are, are like allow you to have like a ton of information on each page. Yeah. Is that something your editor and you worked on to get? Or was that like an intention from the beginning is like all wide angle panels, very cinematic? Like what, what was the thought there? So it, so that's mostly on my end. Um, the number of panels, that part stems mostly from, um, you know, there's a certain amount of story that I wanted to tell. And I was trying not to cram too much stuff on each page because yeah. I didn't want to block up the the good art. And even on even with the way that it is currently, every once in a while, you know, the letterer would say, hey, <laughs> you got too many panels or you got too many captions on this uh, particular panel. Can you cut it down a couple? So, you know, then we would work to smoosh some stuff together. You know, what's not as important? What can we say to still get the point across, but without being as wordy about it? Um, but the way that so the way that I, I wrote it anyways is Cinematic is a good way to put it in terms of like, okay, in my head, this is how I envision the scene. And I envision it from like the camera lens. And I'm like, okay, so when I write out the the panels, I'm like, okay, this is the time of day. Here's where the camera's located. It's like five inches off the ground, pointed 45 degrees up at, you know, such and such characters on the left, such and such characters on the right, you know, things like that. Or for instance, in the third book, there's a scene where I say, okay, the immediate foreground is a bird and the camera's uh, the bird is at an angle the camera is looking down the wing of the bird who the is you can see the entirety of this city um so it's like a very cinematic shot where you're like over the top of this bird but you're also getting this huge view of the city to give an idea of like it's a really big place um so I, I tend to look at things very cinematically because you know i i love movies i've always you know really been into movies and the the big fanfare of all that stuff. So the way that I see it in my head anyways is, is very movie-like. Um, but those wide panels really help to not only just show off all the really amazing art, but to also be able to fit in all the things that I want to say because it is a pretty wordy book um, without blocking up anything pretty much. Gotcha. Yeah. I was wondering about that because it doesn't feel crowded. I was really impressed by that because at one point I counted like nine panels, I think, Mm -hmm. and a page. And I was like, well, this doesn't feel like it's too many. I was really impressed by it. It's very European of you to get. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to. So there's a couple of rules that I was given. It was just like, okay, try and stay within these bounds. Like do not put more than five captions on a panel. Do not try to, on average, you want to be around five panels per page. So I play with that math a little bit where it's like, okay, let's say I want to have a bunch of panels, but I want some small panels to just give like a look at like, oh, he's doing a sleight of hand thing over here or moving this over there. So it's like, okay, well, then we can sort of ignore the five panel rule because then I can get a bunch of these small panels that don't necessarily need captions. So it doesn't necessarily take away I then just have to then do the math of, okay, so now those small panels are taking up what would have been caption space. So now how many captions can I get away with? Um, so that's sort of how I, I go go around things is like, okay, I have this math in my head. What rule or where can I bend and break these rules a little bit? Very nice. Yeah. It's yeah. The old adage, you have to, you have to learn the rules before you can uh, bend them or, or break them. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. So this is, um, 
is this your second time uh, crowdfunding and, and going to, to Kickstarter um, with the second volume of, of or second issue of this book? Yes. So the, the first book came out last year on Kickstarter the exact same time. So I, I, my plan is to every year launch a Kickstarter at DragonCon. So the reason for okay. that is because it sort of got reborn at DragonCon. So I figured, hey, it makes sense to launch it at DragonCon. Also, I have a lot of captive audiences, so they have to listen to me when I say, hey, <laughs> back this on Kickstarter. Um, so, yeah. So last year was my first one. And then we launched the second one uh, at the beginning of this month. Very cool. Yeah. When we had, when we had met, um, I think it was maybe the weekend before and you had nice sort of uh, uh, cards with a QR code for, for the pre-launch page, but I'm assuming at, uh, at Dragon Con with it being, with it being launched, the, the, the approach can be sort of amplified. You can be like, Hey, here's this little, um, you know, promo card. And if you do that QR code, you can get there right now. And you sort of have the instant gratification of, you know, hitting the notification button is, is one thing and waiting, but also to like the, the almost that instant gratification of, all right, I'm going to scan this and I'm, I, you know, I can back it this weekend when it, when it just came out, it's got to be a, a pretty good, pretty good marketing tool. Yeah. And then I, I also tried to do a thing where I made these stickers um, where it says, you know, like and backer. And if you showed that you backed the Kickstarter, then you get a sticker. However, with panels, you have a very limited amount of time between panels, so nobody really has time to like come up. Or even then, a lot of people that I talked to were like, I'm going to back it when I get home. <laughs> I'm not going to do it right now. I'm going to back it when I get home. So it's like, okay, well, you know, best laid plans of mice and men and all that. Um, next year, I may do ribbons instead of um, stickers because people love ribbons at DragonCon. I mean, they literally have contests to see how long they can get their badges to to dangle. Um, with all the ribbons and whatnot. I'm mean, we're talking third story of the hotel and dragging oh. on the ground kind of stuff. Like people go all out for the ribbons. So it's like, okay, well maybe I can, you know, make some ribbons and offer those up. That's amazing. And and this year you would have had the 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 first volume, the the or the first I keep saying volume because uh, I feel like they're they're volumes, but they're but they're issues. Um so you had that, which in previous ones you wouldn't have had. So you, you almost had another piece of uh, marketing material. Cause I know when we were sitting next to each other at uh, Maryland pop and horror con, there was a guy who bought your book and he came over to your table to tell you. And I was just, I could sort of overhear from, you know, being so close to you, you know, he was how much he really enjoyed that book. So, you know, having that, that first issue and saying, all right, you can, you can look at this. You can see that I've, completed printed fulfilled uh, and i'm very serious about this you, you have a, like a sort of a notch in your your, your creative you know tool belt not not the right word but sort of like hey you know i i have this thing i've done it you can you have a little bit more uh maybe a little bit more confidence in me to to produce another another one yeah and, and the other thing was so i brought some books to dragon con as well so we sold some during our big live shows and then i uh, was invited to a sort of like a they call it a fantasy gather where it's like a writer's meet and greet but it's not really it's mostly a room where writers sit with tables and then people can come in and buy books and okay. i sold 20 books in there in three hours um which was really great and then i got to give people cards for the kickstarter and all that and 
Um, at the live show, somebody came up with their book that they got from the Kickstarter. So it had the special foil and they were like, hey, can you sign the book? And I was like, well, yeah, obviously I could sign the book here, hand it on over. So that was really cool that people were bringing their books that they had gotten through the Kickstarter. And they were like, we've already backed the Kickstarter. I was like, all right, sweet for, oh. for the second one. So um, so that was super cool. But uh, so with yeah, this being, I know uh, I, I cut you off there. I no, no, apologize. No, um, so with this being your second Kickstarter, and I, it's, I'm assuming on the first one, you had some folks that were veterans of, of other campaigns. Were they able to warn you about like the, the dreaded dead zone in the middle? And, you know, you have a rush at the beginning, the rush at the, at the end and sort of how to keep your sanity in, in the middle. Were you able to sort of be coached up on that? So it wasn't even that necessarily. So I did a ton of research before I did my first Kickstarter. And part of that was I read a book by i think it's greg pack about doing mm -hmm. kickstarters and he talks about it in there where like you're going to get it a lot up front then you're going to have nothing and then you're going to have a dead zone i managed to actually avoid that last year so I mean, it was a little dead in the middle but not nearly as bad as what people thought and the way i got around that was after things stopped and sort of plateaued so like a week in i then went through my facebook and messaged every single person that I know saying like, hey, I'm doing this Kickstarter. Can you share it? Can you check it out? And then I went through my phone and messaged every single person I know that I didn't message on Facebook and was like, hey, I got this, you know, Kickstarter. Can you check it out? Can you share it? I ended up raising about two or three thousand dollars that way. Whoa. So in the middle, it still stayed pretty steady in terms of like a few hundred dollars a day. Um, so I I managed to avoid that a little bit, but I didn't know about it. And it's funny because this Kickstarter started worse than last year's Kickstarter. So when we left Dragon Con last year, I think we had in the over like three or four days, I had $3,300. But this time around, I only had $2,000 at the same time. So it's like, uh oh, because I figured, oh, I had 177 backers last time. This will be easy because they'll all just come right back. Mm -mm. I've actually... I feel like I've had to grind harder for this Kickstarter than I did for the first Kickstarter. And like people who did back last time are backing it a little bit less than they did last time. Cause I mean, you know, times are tough financially. So I'm just scratching and clawing uh, for like every penny on the Kickstarter. And I being a dum-dum decided, well, because that first one did so well, let me increase the amount of money that I'm going for to 8,000 instead of 6,000. So now I'm like, well, crap. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just giving me a ton of anxiety. I was like, what was I thinking? I shouldn't have made it eight. I should have done something easy like four. And then, you know, once I get to that, then boom, I don't have to stress as much. So we did. So I, I did manage this week because I did a lot of outreach with other Kickstarters where, you know, I'd back all these different Kickstarters and say, hey, I'll give you a shout out. Can you give my, you know, campaign a shout out? And we do, you know, cross promotion that way. And I finally surpassed where I was last year in terms of the amount of money and backers. So for right now, anyways, we're doing better than we were last year. And I'm also doing conventions at the same time. I got one in Erie this weekend, assuming that my roommate doesn't give me COVID in the next three days because he's got COVID. Um, oh. And then I have another one day convention at the very end of the month. And uh, so, you know, I have a few things planned that I'm hoping can also drum up uh, some support that I wouldn't have had otherwise. Oh, so I have a question about the uh, 
the the direct contact through through messaging. Um, and I, I want to know um, how you handle it. Um, and uh, is because all right, I'm just gonna. I'll, I guess I'll lead off with I have like a real pet peeve when I get a DM and it's like, mm-hmm. hey, my Kickstarter is is running. Sure. Um, and they don't even take the time to be like, hey, Matt. And I'm just like, you, you obviously just copied and pasted. Yeah. Do you do you, do you take the, the time to the personalize or as much as you can be like, hey, you know, you're a comic book fan, you know, you're in the sure. sphere. Um, I thought maybe you'd be interested in that. Like, do, do you have a, an approach like that? And if you do do the cut and paste, that that's that's a time saving message. Then I'm sure. not I'm not I'm not criticizing you if you do. It's just it's just a pet peeve. I no, have. no, sure, sure. So it's my least favorite thing. Like I yes. hate doing. I hate asking people for anything, which is funny because it's Kickstarter. So you're literally <laughs> asking people for things. So you know, it's cool, but it also makes my skin crawl at the same time. Um, so last year when I was doing it, I did do not necessarily copy paste, but I wasn't even doing like a, a warm up. Uh, and this time, and then I learned over time as I was doing it last year. So like the first 10 messages were all like kind of, you know, not great in terms of just being, Hey, I'm doing this Kickstarter, check it out here, blah, 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 blah. Eventually it turned into a, Hey, such and such, how are you doing? How's this going? How are you feel like, you know, I, I try and talk about something that happened to them, you know, from recent memory. Like, uh, for instance, somebody I reached out to yesterday, I was like, hey, you know, how's your back doing? Because I knew they threw it out like a week ago. So, so, you know, talk about that. And then we just do, you know, some normal chit chat. And then sometimes mm-hmm. they would just straight up say, hey, you're doing that Kickstarter, right? I have to back that. And I'm like, cool. Nice. Other times, at you know, after we talk for like five minutes, I'm like, hey, by the way. And, you know, if you if you aren't interested in this, no worries at all. You know, but if you know anybody that might be interested, I'm doing this entirely word of mouth. So any help you can give me, I really appreciate. And then I, you know, give them the link to the Kickstarter. And most of the time they'll say like, oh, yeah, I'll check it out. And most of the time they do that. You know, they may only back at the digital level, but, you know, for the most part, they do uh, check it out now. I will say this time around, I did not message the people on Facebook that I saw the last time I messaged them was to say, hey, we back my Kickstarter. So I was like, yeah. you know, I probably shouldn't message them <laughs> right now. Maybe I'll send some, you know, Merry Christmas messages or something like that so that there's something in between. Because I was like, ah, I feel a little dirty having the last message that I sent them be the exact same message that I'm sending them this time. So uh, I try and take a warmer response because typically if you take the time to um, show that you are interested in another person. Typically you get something back. Um, and if, even if you don't, you at least had some normal human interaction for a change as opposed to me constantly asking people for money and doing social media posts and all that jazz. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I, uh, I, I agree with you. It's, it's, it's a very difficult thing. I mean, I, I know people I've, I've had a group of, of friends um, for, for a number of years and um early on, I would, I would sort of be like, Hey, there's this thing you want to check it out. And I would do it a number of times. And now I'm just like, all right, this is my one and only time I'm going to contact you and I'm going to leave it alone. It's, it's, it's a bit difficult to, uh, to, uh, to, to do that personal, personal outreach. So. um, Yeah, I definitely don't do it numerous times. I'll do it once unless they said, unless it's somebody that I specifically know wants to back it. 
mm-hmm. and then just hasn't because they forgot. Um, I do know a couple people like that. And even last year, somebody messaged me like two weeks after the Kickstarter and was like, hey, are you still doing it? Can I still back it? And I'm like, I literally make one to two posts on social media every single day for the last month. And then it went quiet. You don't think that's for a reason? <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's 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 i I've, I've had that experience too and you're, you're just like man i can't believe I, I was i was posting for 30 31 days and you know six days later you're like hey is that is that thing going on that's that's yeah that's yeah that's that's no fun um i i was talking about my pet peeve of just sort of the the hey um you know not even taking the time to to address me by name yeah. Um, I had, I had a lot of fun with, um, I, I run three sort of, um, social media accounts, one for me personally, one for the podcast and, and one for the, the publishing company that, that we're involved with. Mm-hmm. And whenever I would get that sort of blanket, Hey, my Kickstarter's running on my reply would be like, Hey, guess what? My Kickstarter's running too. <laughs> and just like, just reply back to them with, with a Kickstarter, just be like, you know, you didn't even take the time to look up and be like hey you know do you want to cross remote or anything like that so i had a little bit of fun a little bit of fun with that so um, well the cross promoting thing it hadn't even really occurred to me while i was planning things out it did happen a couple of times last year but they had reached out to me i had reached out to them and it didn't even you know cross my mind and then i had somebody reach out to me this year and then i was like oh i should probably reach out to other Kickstarters and see if they would do cross promo because now that I have done it, almost all of them have said, yes, there's a few that haven't, but um, haven't even bothered to respond. But I mean, I always back their project first and then I say, Hey, I backed your project. Really looking forward to reading it. And then I say something specific to the book. So it actually seems like I did something. Although, I mean, they could just look and see that. Yes, Mm -hmm. I did back it. And then I say, Hey, I'm also doing a Kickstarter. I don't know if you ever do cross promotion through updates, but if you'd be interested, I'd be more than happy to give yours a shout out. I do one every couple of days. Hey, if you want to take a look at my project to see if it would be a good fit, you can find it at the redirect link here. Hope to hear from you soon. Take care and best of luck with the rest of your project. And that's usually the message that I send. And almost every time I get a response back saying like, oh, hey, man, your project looks great. Be more than happy to do cross promo, that type of thing. Yeah. Um, are you looking for, you know, other historical fiction books that, uh, you know, delve into the horror uh, to try to do the cross promotion, the hope that the the, the audiences are, are the same, you know, Noah and I did a, you know, an all ages, you know, children's book and we, we had mm-hmm. some guys on um, and they were running a, a Kickstarter the whole at the, at the same time. And there, you know, it was a zombie plague story and we're like, ah, we will, uh, we'll, we'll, crossover okay maybe maybe while you're getting your zombie book you want to pick up something for your kids and yeah maybe uh maybe when you're getting something for your kids you want to get something for yourself so there's you know there's two approaches you sort of the the targeted market or the just like hey i'm just going to throw this to everybody out on the you know kickstarter ecosphere because you know i don't know you know they might have a family member that's in could they could gift it to or or Mm -hmm. what so do you do you have an approach there so Typically, I, I so when I go in there, there are certain projects that I avoid. So like the, the stuff that's like all just about the boobs, even though mm-hmm. those typically are very, very successful, typically avoid it unless it has something thematically similar to mine. Um, kid stuff, I don't even usually 
look at because you know as you were saying it doesn't really match the theme to try and say like hey i'm going to pitch a kid's book or try to have a kid's book pitch my comic to their audience doesn't really make sense so typically so i I don't limit it to a specific genre though so for instance uh the last update had some um mythological horror had some more anime style mythology stuff there was uh superheroes there was a galactic lawyer comic that i had um shouted out here let me see i got a whole list here (laughs) uh there's one about a unicorn so it didn't really uh, there's a apocalyptic book so it, it didn't necessarily matter to me uh the genre just more so could the audiences possibly overlap that's why i put in the shout out or not even the shout out but when i reach out originally i'm like hey here's my project if you think it would be a good fit let me know sure. um and most of the time it's you know they're not exactly the same genre but i i also don't know if it has to be perfectly it just can't be wildly different uh for me anyways um yeah. but yeah so that, that's sort of my approach when i'm looking up kickstarters and reaching out and all that jazz Cool. So I think we're getting close to the, to the end of the interview, but um, we have Noah um, who hasn't had to ask or hasn't had a chance to ask many questions about the, the crowdfunding aspect of this. So I'm going to check in with him real quick. Yeah, I was just, I've already backed it. So but I was, <laughs> I, 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 I was one of the first, not one of the first, but I was at the end of the first weekend. Um, what, I saw that. Thank you. Oh, you know, anytime um, they, the question I had was actually just more if you would uh, explain to the listeners all the cool add-ons you have for this one. Obviously, you can cat. There's a catch-up tier, but um, sure, there, there are other cool. There are other cool things there too. So there's a the um, the thing I struggle with most with Kickstarter is stretch goals, but the rewards I always try and make them interesting but also kind of personalized a little bit mm. so last year i tried to do some D related stuff you know i'd write you a campaign or a one-off but not everybody plays D, so nobody really seemed to care um this year i went with an audio aspect because you know i'm a podcaster i like to do voiceover and all that jazz so the normal rewards you know you can get your book uh, we have your a thank you page in the book at certain tiers t-shirts pins Uh, Stuff like that. But some of the really cool things, there is uh, an audio commentary track where I will break down panel by panel, page by page, everything in the book and talk about sort of, you know, the making of process, you know, how, what went into the decision making to make this page, like what happened with the art, what happened with the back and forth, what was I trying to do with the story here, and just give like a really in-depth behind the curtain peek as to how everything worked with this particular book, sort of like a director's commentary kind of thing. I also do. So the highest tier you can go is $500 and that is a lot of money, but you get a ton of stuff with it. So you get to die in the next book, which I think is one of the funniest things because I do have a couple friends. One of which is, is apparently now trying to do a bunch of Uber driving so he can afford the $500 tier again. Because he wants to make it a recurring thing where he just dies in every book. So you get to die in the book like a horribly 
like a horrible grisly death. So for instance, the, the one guy who's going to be doing the Uber driving, if you go on the Kickstarter, it's him. That's the tier that it shows. Uh, he's at a campfire and he gets his head ripped off by a werewolf. Um, so, but you also get a print of that page that I'll sign. So I'll mail you a print of the page that you die on and sign it. You also get a customized hockey jersey. And my plan is every Kickstarter to have a specific hockey jersey that's designed to coincide with the theme of the book. And I'm not selling it anywhere else. So like with the T-shirts and the prints and the poster, like I'll sell those, you know, after everybody gets their stuff at conventions and things like that. But the jersey, you can only get it through the Kickstarter. And this one is green with gold and uh, white lettering. The last one was black and red and white. So if you get it, for the Kickstarter, that's the only time it'll ever be there. And every Kickstarter will have its own individually customized jersey that says CFB on it, which stands for Chief Financial Backer. And you get a pin also that says Chief Financial Backer on it. But you also get um, a an audio rendition of the book where it's fully voice acted, narrated. Uh, you get um, – it'll have ambient noise and sound effects and all that stuff. So I already have like a team of people that have like – reached out to me and said, hey, I want to be part of this. So we're going to put that together. So it'll be like just a fun little another way to listen to the book. And of course, posters and prints and all that stuff. Um, slip cover is another thing you get at the $500 tier that will only be through the Kickstarter. I will not do them. You know, I won't sell them outside of the Kickstarter. It'll only be for this one. And of course, uh, with the three covers, you can pick at the end of the campaign which cover you'd like to get. So with the add-ons, if you want to get all the covers, you can just buy, you know, additional copies of the book to get all the other covers of the book. Very cool. That sounds, that sounds really cool. And I, I would assume that anybody listening to a podcast called constructing comics would be really into that uh, audio commentary where they get the, yeah. you know, the decision-making and the, the, the creative process broken down, you know, it would be really awesome to put your headphones on, flip the pages and, and listen to that at the, at the same time. Yeah, I'm hoping I'm, I'm hoping that people that are into the sort of behind the scenes uh, will get some some neat little uh, insight into how the sausage is made. And then maybe even, you know, um, pick up some stuff for if they want to make comics, you know, maybe they'll learn like, oh, what to avoid or, you know, work on that type of thing, um, you know, if they want to get into it. Very cool. So let's do this as we close up, Dennis. Let's um, let the folks um, know the best places. Um, to, to follow you online and you know you, you gave us the elevator pitch early on and we've been talking about this book um, but let's talk a little bit more about it and, and when the kickstarter um, will we'll finish up um, so again best places online a little bit more about the book and how long the, the kickstarter runs for Sure. So like in Solomon's Odyssey, chapter two is live on Kickstarter right now, and it'll run until October 2nd. Uh, I think at like 10 p.m. on October 2nd is when it finally ends. Um, and you can get there easily by going to www.likenbook.com. That's L-Y-C-A-N book.com. That's the easy redirect. Or if you want to go the, the old traditional way, you can go to Kickstarter and search for Lycan Solomon's Odyssey Chapter 2. That's the other easiest way to find it. And like I said, this book goes into Arabic folklore and mythology and monsters, and we're talking some really gnarly stuff in there, um, while also dealing with the aftermath of what happened in the first book. Very and then cool. as far as where... Oh, sorry. No, no, I was going to say that's very cool. And we're going to 
Uh, we're going to have a link to that uh, in in the show notes, but I think you're about to, to give out some best places to follow you on like social media and, and that kind of stuff. Yep. You beat me to it. So uh, you can find me on the internet, on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, all that stuff at world's most okayest DM. I mostly just post pictures of, well, comic book stuff, but also of my dog Yoshi. That's mostly what people care about. Oh, side note, before I forget, at DragonCon, my roommate told me that if we can manage to get the Kickstarter to $15,000, he will allow me to buy another dog. Not that it's being bought with Kickstarter money, but I'll just have the capability to be <laughs> able to have another dog because he is bogarting me from being able to get another one. So Yoshi needs a little sister. I've already named it. It's going to be a brown newfie named Kirby because because we're continuing with Nintendo characters that eat lots of stuff. Um, and if you want to check out my podcast, Botched, a D&D podcast, it's on all your podcatchers. We also have a website, botchpodcast.com. We also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash botchpodcast. I have a Patreon for my comic book stuff where I give sneak peeks into the art for the book like upcoming art. I give free updates as to what's going on. And then I do a podcast with my buddy Charles where we sort of talk about, you know, what's going on with the books, like behind the scenes stuff, going to conventions, doing the Kickstarter, like sort of thoughts, feelings, uh, stuff like that. So if you want to check that out, that's patreon.com slash Hivehead Studios. And if you want to check out the first book online, you can actually download the first 18 pages for free on my website. That's hiveheadstudios.com. Very cool. Well, again, links to, to everything will be in the show notes and most important for, for right now until October 2nd, uh, the Kickstarter link. Um, it's really cool. Um, you know, Noah and I picked up that, that book, the, the first issue. We both read it. We both really uh, enjoyed it. We're looking forward to, to issue two and uh, all the way up into to 15. It's, it's, it's a really great story. Um, so let's... Let's, uh, you know, sort of pencil in, um, I guess, maybe this time next year, uh, sure. you'll be crowdfunding um, issue three. So let's, uh, let's pencil in that we can touch base at least at that point, if not uh, sooner again on, on the podcast. Say, I'll probably see it cons every, I mean, now that, now that we know each other exist and that we've already been to two of the, <laughs> two of the three cons in that month. Um, yeah, I'm sure we'll see each other again. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. So I'd like to, to thank everybody for listening. If you give us a rating and review on the podcasting service um, that you use, we really appreciate it. There's also going to be a second Kickstarter link in the show notes, and that's going to be to the Concrete Arcanum anthology um, that is launching um, at the time of the, the release of this podcast. I have a story that I wrote. Um, in that with uh, art by Ertan Seahan, who I've worked with and Noah's worked with in the past. So there's going to be a second Kickstarter link in the show notes. Um, if you want to follow our podcast, we're on Twitter, and that is at ConstructCompod. Instagram is Constructing Comics Pod, and Facebook is Constructing Comics. Just like to thank everybody for listening. Please be safe, be nice to each other, and go out there and make some comics. Thank you.